This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. We have such a remarkable show today. Dreamland has gone to many, many places. It has gone to Gobekli Tepe. It has gone to various, to Saxahuaman, to various different places, to the mounds in the central United States, all over the place, to the Templar remains on uh, 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 Newfoundland, to Oak Island. We've been all over the world. And we've been to Egypt quite a few times, but not like this, not like this. We're going to be talking to the creator of one of the single most extraordinary books about Egypt I have ever seen in a life that when I was 10 years old, I was taken to the bookstore by my mother and said, you can buy anything you want. And I bought two books on ancient Egypt, which I still possess, but they don't equal the extraordinary beauty, even magnificence of this book. And why are we getting into it? Well, we're getting specifically into the Temple of Dendera, and I want to welcome the author, Jose Barrera, to Dreamland for the first time. Jose, I'm so glad you were willing to come on this show and share some of your discoveries with us. Well, Whitley, thank you for having me. I, I, the honor is all mine and the pleasure is all mine. Thank you. Well, first of all, folks, Dendera Temple of Time is brain-bending. Uh, it is absolutely unbelievable that anyone could do this. And I want to uh, start out by asking you what drew you to the temple of Hathor at Dendera in the first place? Uh, I think that that's an interesting question. We're starting with an interesting question. Uh, first chance, I was never expecting to end up in Egypt, but the source of the book is the magnificence of the temple. So once you have behold that place, you cannot forget it and you cannot get it out of your head. And it became my obsession. And I wanted to know what it all meant, this temple. And I found that there is no easy accessible documentation about it, especially in English. So the book that I created is the book that I wanted to find to describe what I saw there. And since it didn't exist, I was like, this is something that begs to be created. And that's the reason why I did that. But it is at the end, is the energy of the temple, the, the sheer beauty and, and magnificence of the temple that took me there. Usually, folks, we just uh, show the image of the book at the, as you know, but I'm going to hold the book up now for just a moment and open it and just to take a look at what we've got here. This is absolutely incredible. Look at this thing. Look at this beautiful, beautiful book. Oh, of course, I didn't get it onto the right pages. This is, this is not a good idea. 
This is the sort of thing you see in it. It's full of imagery like that. And beautifully, beautifully photographed. And what we're going to do now is we're going to find out from Jose what the secrets of this temple are, because they're very extraordinary. This is a, an important place to this day. It's important to anyone engaged in a serious inner search. Jose, let's tell us a little bit about the history of the temple first. Okay, so this temple is a recent temple by relative standards of Egypt. So it was created at the end of, at the, at the sunset of the Egyptian civilization right when the Romans were entering into Egypt and were conquering Egypt. So it's a very late temple and it, that, that has a bunch of advantages and nice things. And is that in a way, this temple summarizes the knowledge that the Egyptians have in uh, different aspects, in particular in astronomy, because this ceiling that the book is about, so basically the book, is about a ceiling in this temple that is a magnificent ceiling covered with astronomical images. And what is nice that this temple is a late temple from the time of Cleopatra, actually. She was one of the builders of the temple, or not, not herself, she, she, she sponsored the building of this temple. Oh, well, we understand that, yeah. <laughs> and Basically, what, what is interesting about this temple, as, as I was mentioning, is that because it is a late temple, then you have a compendium of all the knowledge of astronomy that the Egyptians have in this ceiling. And then the other thing that it has is that it's, it's as if it was new, as if, if it was built yesterday. So uh, the Ministry of Antiquities of Egypt uh, sponsored the cleaning of the ceiling like a couple, like last decade. So the colors are pristine and, and the whole temple is in perfect condition, just like the day it was built, except a couple of uh, iconoclasms that it has inside and the facings uh, by Coptic Christians in, in the future and the passage of time. But in general, the, the temple is in perfect shape. So it's not that other ancient ruins where you go and you have a couple of columns standing and things like that. No, these, the, the whole housing of the temple, the, the roofs, the whole thing is, is in perfect shape. And it's, it's a magnificent, beautiful work of architecture and art inside. Mm, so yeah, it is a late temple uh, from the end of the Ptolemaic period. And it was finished by the guys who became the emperor, the, the pharaohs, the late pharaohs, who were basically the emperors of, of Rome, Roman emperors. So the temple, as we know it today, was finished in the first century uh, uh, after Christ, basically. Um, I think what we need to do here is to first talk about Hathor and who Hathor was because what we need what I want to do is to try to get an idea of what this temple tells us what it it says and why it is 
so, so important, certainly in terms of the history of our understanding of the Egyptian religion. It's vitally important, but it is important on, a, on deeper levels as well. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about Hathor? Oh, wait, wait, before you go on, the perfect moment has arrived, folks. Uh, we're going to uh, take a break. And you can visit Jose at josebarrera.com, josebarrera.com. And I'll put that in the crawl in a few minutes. It's Jose Maria Barrera. I'm sorry, Jose Maria Barrera dot com. Yeah, J O S A M A R I A B A R R A, I think. I'll put it in the crawl. <laughs> I told you it was a, a mouthful, right? <laughs> right, exactly. But you can visit him there and get a, a, a sense of the flavor of this book. And why do I think books like this are so important? Why have I had my own? Egypt books with me all of my life because this is alive. This is something alive that it's not dead. Uh, it, it's not some old religion. There's a vivid reality here. And that's why I want to talk about Hathor when we get back. We're talking to Jose Barrera. His new book, Dendera, The Temple of Time, and we're going to be finding out why it's called the Temple of Time, why he calls it that. But first, let's talk about the goddess to whom it is dedicated. Tell us a little bit about Hathor and her history and why such an extraordinary temple would be built honoring her. Okay, so... Actually, the, the place where the, the temple is located is called Dendera. And the goddess of the temple is the goddess Hathor, as you mentioned. The goddess Hathor is a millenary goddess. It's one of the most ancient goddesses of ancient of deities of ancient Egypt. She comes from pre-dynastic times and Initially, she was worshipped as a cow. And as time went by, more attributes were attributed to the goddess. And in the late period when this temple is from, the distinction between Hathor and Isis is flimsy. They're becoming the same deity at the end of the of the of their Roman period, right? So these goddess is the goddess mostly and, and, and chiefly of fertility and life and life giving. So that I would say is that the main factor of, of the goddess Hathor is that she's the goddess of life, of fertility. And along those things came other things that are related and we can see why they're related. She was a goddess of sex the goddess of inheritation, the goddess of love, the goddess of music and festivity. And she was also a punisher. So in some cases, she became a lioness and then she almost destroyed humanity in an act of rage. So 
all these gods, all these ancient deities, what is interesting about them, if you think about Zeus or in the case, in the case of, of Greek gods, is that these gods are dualistic. They're not only good or evil, but they have attributes on both sides. And what is interesting is that one thing that I learned about these gods of antiquity, and, and I think this pertains to what you were saying, that they're still alive today. It's not that Zeus disappeared with, with the Greeks or the Romans, or that Hathor disappeared at the, at the sunset of, of the Egyptian civilization. It's that these gods, in reality, what they represent is forces of nature and of the psyche. So those things, and that's precisely what they're immortal, is because our psyche and who we are and the forces that, that mold us and, and that tell who we are, they haven't changed in millennia and they probably will be the same in the next millions of years. So, so those things that are the, the, the forces that shape our nature are embodied in these gods and in these deities. So these anthropomorphical visions of these forces is what brings these gods. But in reality, what they're talking to us is not about the, the bodies with the head of a cow or, a, or a, a lion or whatever it is. What they represent, if you have a head of a lion, is you're fearless, right? And, and it's power. Yes. And so, so what they are is anthropomorphizations of attributes embodied in these characters. So you can create stories and myths about them, but the reality is that they are real because they represent these forces. They're symbols for forces and attributes of fundamental of the fundamental nature of who we are and where we are. That is the best explanation of the ancient gods that I've heard because time after time, I hear people who don't go deep enough. They think the ancients thought of their gods as actual physical beings. And of course, this isn't true. This is what you're describing is the truth. This is how these gods were perceived. They were <clears throat> forces of the of the spirit of the mind of the heart and of nature personified basically correct and 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 therefore when you study the the wisdom of the ancient gods and their powers you're studying your own inner life and the life of nature and this is the power of these temples knowing this and understanding this you go into a place like the the temple of Hathor, and it's transformative. Um, <clears throat> I, now, I would agree. Sorry, I would agree with you on almost everything that you said, except one thing, and is, I think, analog. Like it's very analog to what happens today, like in Christianity. Say, I think there are people who take Christianity at face value and literally, and I would imagine in the past like the peasants and the people who live in like the working class of, of, of the empires, they truly believed in the characters, in the, in the 
effigies that were put there at face value, just like people today, they pray to the images of saints and, and animals and whatever it is, right? And they create little altars. And I think that's one level of understanding, right? One very esoteric, exoteric level of understanding of, of, of religion. And I think that happens today, right? Like with, with people who believe, for example, in Christianity, literally, and they believe that there was a talking snake and we are 4,000 years old and so on, because they take these stories literally. But there is another way to read and interpret yes. these stories, which is what we were talking about. And I think it's, it's, it's deeper. It's a deeper understanding and way is a richer understanding of reality, just like the, the face value of the myth. Well, yeah, it's a debased uh, way of looking at it when people personify it like that. In other words, they, they, they literalize the stories. And, of course, that, that was done routinely in the in the in ancient times and uh, uh, even but but not by the people who were really were seriously pursuing this uh, the this effort and the, the inner journey that the gods represented in in fact later on in the roman empire when the plague after plague came to the empire and the barbarian incursions started and the empire began to be shaken to its core people turned on the gods as if they were protective entities and that's why we see so many statues uh smashed with their arms gone and their heads their faces smashed off or their heads smashed off because people were going around and literally smashing them on the theory that if they smashed them they would kill the gods that were oppressing them and so it was a decline there was a decline but this this is a this this temple is not from that late era. This temple is it's almost as if is it the last great temple that was created by the Egyptians themselves? Probably there there in this this period in the Ptolemaic period there was a big or a great wave of building temples across Egypt. So I would say a lot of the temples, like you look at the temple of Edfu or the temple of Esna, uh, their temples are probably contemporary to, to, to the temple of Hathor at Dendera. Mm. So it, it came by, by waves, right? When, when there was opulence or when they wanted to make a political statement, they, they constructed this infrastructure and all these temples in the, in the, across time right so so you have different periods of time where depending on on the pharaoh what you have is deep like heavy construction of infrastructure just like happens with governments right like there are some governments that decide to invest on let's create highways and airports and things like that uh so i think it is kind of similar and these temples were political institutions uh, let's remind the, the audience they were not only religious but they were they were political, right? Like they were the the centers of 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 power and and administration of of the of the of these different uh, of the of the Egyptian Empire was basically centralizing in these temples. So they were not only places of, of worship, 
but they were they they had also administrative functions for the empire basically for this theocracy so the in a sense the theocracy was trying to perhaps preserve itself in the sense of they must have seen they had just had the years of uh, they'd been conquered by alexander the great and it, it, the country was now being run by the greeks and now the romans and they were i think perhaps trying to preserve their understanding and their civilization with these extraordinary late temples especially absolutely. this one absolutely in the in the walls of the temples and like on the surfaces of the temples they encode encoded a lot of information that was never encoded before on any writing put down to writing so there's yeah, and I think I mentioned this in the book at some point, that is that perhaps the priests of these temples start to see around and sense the decline of the culture and and their language is, is dying because Greek is becoming like the, the main language in, in there. Yes. And it, it literally died for 2,000 years. We, humanity forgot how to read hieroglyphs. So... So they were right in the case that they were writing something on the on the walls. What, what they didn't count with was that we would forget how to read that, and just by a happenstance and and by a, an act of luck, we are today able to kind of read what is on the walls because of the discovery of the Rosetta Stone. Because if it wasn't because of those stellas, which are basically plagues that are written in, in, in that have some writings. In the case of the Rosetta Stone, what happened is that it was uh, written on the top on, on, on hieroglyphs and at the bottom on ancient Greek. If we didn't have that, that, that link between a language that we know today, that is ancient Greek and uh, ancient Egyptian in hieroglyphs today, we wouldn't be able to read anything on these walls. So it is literally a miracle and, and uh, an act of luck that they unearthed this rock with the with the which is the Rosetta Stone, because otherwise we wouldn't know what, what, what was on the walls, and that would be lost forever, basically. So they were they were engaged in a it really what amounts to a life or death struggle. And they built this in part uh, to, uh, to 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 preserve and and in a sense to overwhelm people with the power of the ideas. And let's talk now a little bit about those ideas because this is a temple that has got an, a lot of astrological significance um can you explain more about the astronomical functions of the temple correct so yeah and, and and i heard that you mentioned astrological first and then astronomical and i think it's correct because this distinction this modern distinction between astronomy and astrology is a modern distinction and that didn't exist in the past so let me let me draw a picture for you that I think is super interesting and is 
imagine these temples, as you said, these magnificent, very imposing structures, and they're in the middle of, of a field, and what you have is these massive columns and these massive place covered with symbols around, and you are a peasant, right? You, you work on the fields, and you walk by every day to around these temples. These temples didn't have access. It's not like our modern churches where people go to worship and you can go into the temple. These ancient temples were reserved for the priestly class and the pharaoh. So not everyone had access to the inner parts of the temple. People could go outside and they had certain chapels where people could go and worship, but the, the, the real temple was reserved for the priests because it was supposed to be the house of the God. And the God was supposed, the deity was supposed to inhabit these temples. So imagine these temples covered with symbols. Most of the people are illiterate. They don't know how to read. <clears throat> and they see all these priests in fancy clothes, right? dressing pristine white and what these priests do is that they go to the temples and they look at the the sky and they look at the gods in the sky and imagine these walls are covered with images of the gods very imposing and gigantic and so on and these priests get messages from the sky and then they can predict the future and then they can foretell what's going to happen in the future. And that's the view from the point of view of a peasant that is like a, a worker that has nothing to do with the priestly class. What they see is that there are these people, the priests, who can talk to, communicate with the beings in the sky, and they send them messages on how to act, and they can predict what happens in the future. Uh, now, let's look look at that from the point of view of the priests. So what the priests are in reality are in or one of their functions is they're astronomers. So they're looking at the stars because the stars and, and the planets and, and the celestial bodies have one attribute that is incredibly important and is that their movements are cyclical. So you can use the stars as a gigantic clock where you have this watch in the sky, which is the movement of the stars across the year. And based on the position of the stars during the year, I know where in the year I am. And in the case of Egypt, the most important event in the case of Egypt was the flooding of the Nile River. Because think about this, Egypt is a desert with a miracle in, that crosses, goes across Egypt, that is the Nile, that creates an oasis that is a thousand miles long with one of the most fertile soils in the whole planet. But this fertility depends on the flooding of the Nile. And think about the, the, what happens during the flood is that the water goes out on the banks of the, of the river. And then when the water recesses, then you created the most fertile land in, in, in the, the planet where you can plant and harvest and so on. And then as it dries out, 
the 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 land starts to dry and then you start to wait and hope for the next flooding on the next cycle and this happens to be once a year because the waters from Ethiopia from the torrential uh, rains in Ethiopia that happened uh, in April then or in, in March then they come down the Nile and that's what creates all this cycle of fertility so from the point of view of the priests what they're doing is they're using the sky and the patterns in the sky to be able to foretell the future namely when is that we're going to have different events like in the case of the egyptians it is the flooding of the nile and based on that then they can foretell oh so we have to start preparing for planting this month we have to start preparing for harvesting this time and so on so what they're doing is they're observing at the stars, they're observing the stars and using those as markers to regiment the civil activity and the, and the, the activity of the people, the community around the cycles of nature. So from the point of view of the people who work on the fields, this is a supernatural act of these priests there are magicians and astrologers and are looking at the stars and foretelling the future and they can predict when things are going to happen and from the point of view of the of the of the priests what they're doing is they're scientists observing the sky and taking measurements and creating calendars so they can predict when the different natural events that are relevant for the good well functioning of society are going to happen so I think that completes the, the, the picture on how how things are seen from one side and the other, basically. You uh, Let's take another break. Uh, we'll be right back with Jose Barrera. We're talking to Jose Maria Barrera, his website, josemariabarrera.com, about his extraordinary new book about Dendera, the, the temple there. And uh, it is a remarkable book and a remarkable journey. One of the things that, that the temple does is uh, uh, it, it, it seems to be attempting to make a, a kind of a structure. We talked about their relationship with the future. And of course they were trying to predict the Nile flood and uh, all sorts of events. And they had the astronomical knowledge to do just that. And these temples were reflecting that. But <clears throat> what about We've talked a little bit about the historical context in, of the temple, but <clears throat> what about its mythological context? Uh, we've talked briefly about Hathor and Isis kind of melding together as the same deity in later Egypt, but where did Hathor come from? And what is her mythological significance? Okay, so as I mentioned before, Hathor is a very ancient goddess. Yes. And 
she so because she has like and and, and in this case right we're talking about probably six thousand year old deity like it is one of the long longest living deities in in humanity right uh, six thousand years like a long time and she's pretty dynastic so she appears in different myths and she she serves as different roles or she she in 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 mythology so on one side she as as i mentioned before she's a guardian of justice and she's one of the eyes of ra and and she's the scorching sun on the other side she's love and she's fertility mm. she is also music and when you start to think about all these things what they have in common is that she's the goddess of rhythm like namely music literally rhythm but not only that the rhythm of fertility so if you think about the menstrual cycle right and by the, by the way month and and menstrual menstrual comes from month which means to measure and if you think about and, and this is incredible the cycles of the moon the phases of the moon are synchronized with the timing of fertility of the human race like it is incredible that that in a way the moon tells the menstrual or, or, or is, is the mental cycle, right? So, so the stars are aligned with the fertility of humanity in that way, literally, and, and it is fascinating. And, and not only that cycle, but when you start to think about the influences of the stars, astrology, literally, on humans, think about what is the influence of the sun on people. And it's unbelievable. The cycle of the sun, which is what we call basically the, 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 the spinning of Earth, which is what we call night and day, and it's 24 hours, that's related to our cycles of dreaming and being awake. So just think about this for a, for a second. It's, it's, it's incredible. Is that when the sun goes away and there is night, we humans get sleepy and we go to sleep and we dream and we hallucinate or we go to these dreamly realms and we live these fantastic stories for eight hours a day and then we wake up in our collective reality again every day when the light comes back about of the sun and we live our daily lives and we have this cycle and it's a periodic cycle that happens every 24 hours we have a we die and resurrect every 24 every every 12 hours right right and and it's fascinating because this is tied to the movements of the planets relative to earth 
Well, you know, there's a fascinating book out that has a, a very modern take on this. It's called Universe Within, and it is about the apparent fact that the human brain models the universe. And in other words, it it is literally as above, so below. Mm-hmm. The brain, the structures of the brain reflect the structures of the universe. And so it. when I read that book, and I'm hoping to interview the author, I thought to myself, it seems to me that the ancient world somehow was aware of this, not necessarily uh, scientifically and verbally, but certainly intuitively. And that said, uh, I would like to move into uh, the Dendera Circular Zodiac that's in the Louvre that you mentioned in the book. Mm-hmm. And, and tell us about that Zodiac, because I think that if, it, I mean, we've always assumed that astrology, um, not me, but many people, that astrology is just nonsense. But in view of the fact that there may be some kind of a deep connection between the way the brain works and the way the universe works, now I'm not so sure. Mm-hmm. So uh, tell us about the Dendera Circular Zodiac. Okay. Uh, with, with a preface about what you said, and is that the problem with all this esoteric uh, knowledge is that there are always two sides of it. There is a deep truth on it, and there are all these charlatans that, that profit from all this. So, so, like, weaving out what is true and what is not in all these topics is really hard because there are many charlatans. And, and many gullible people, but there is a kernel of truth, as you mentioned, on all these things. Yes, exactly. Uh, now, the circular zodiac, as it is known, is so think about this. So, at the beginning of the 19th century, actually, the, the last year of the, of the 18th century, at the turn of the 19th century, Napoleon decided to invade Egypt. And it was mostly and mainly for strategic reasons, because what he wanted to do was he wanted to cut the access to India for the for the British Empire, and that was a part of that. And the other one is he wanted to make Egypt the breadbasket of the French Empire. Mm, as part of this, he got all these civilians who were architects and engineers and artists and all these, what they were called the savants, were 160 of them to go in this military campaign uh, along with 35,000 soldiers. And they went to Egypt when they conquered Egypt. So as we were saying before, when they arrived to Egypt, they start to see all these structures that are magnificent, like, like the pyramids and all these temples and all these things that are grandiose and abandoned and covered in sand. And they forgot how to read what it says on the walls. So, so when they come here, they look at this and it's like, imagine you land on Mars and you find all these temples in Mars and they're covered with these alien 
script that you have no idea what it is, but it's obviously from an advanced civilization because the structures themselves are incredibly advanced and harmonious and beautiful and magnificent. And you look at the walls and they're covered with gobbledygook because you cannot read it because it's an alien script. And what happens in this temple and is the first thing that happened in, in whole Egypt is that these intellectuals who are walking around this structure, they come to Dendera and they look at the ceiling and they see for the first time something that is that they know and is the signs of the zodiac because the signs of the zodiac are Babylonic and they're Greek. So there is all this tradition of the zodiac that they didn't die with Egypt and so on, but continued because of astrology and, and the constellations. So all of a the sudden they see on this temple something that they can relate, relate to. And they go upstairs in one little chapel that is a chapel dedicated to the uh, god Osiris. And on the ceiling of that chapel, they find these astronomical scene that contains the stars of the zodiac and they are like oh my god all of the sun we found something that we have a chance to understand because there is something that we know in it that is the stars of the zodiac the constellations of the zodiac so they look at it and more than anything what they say is based on the position of the constellations and the different relative stars on this ceiling we can date when this chapel was made because they had no idea. They, they went there and they had no idea what is the origin of the, of the Egyptian uh, civilization. They have certain anecdotes and stories told by uh, Greek explorers, right, from people who visited at the time of, of the Ptolemaic time uh, the temples and they wrote about it. But that's the last thing that they know about this. They have no idea when it came, when it started, and so on. So based on this ceiling, they're like, oh, my God, we can date when this temple is from. So long story short, 20 years go by in 1820. Uh, one guy goes there with gunpowder and takes down the, the, this, this, the, the roof of this chapel, which is called the, the Circular Zodiac, which is... What would be the size of that? That's probably like, say, mm, 10 feet, probably a radio a diameter or something like that. Like, and and they move this rock, they put it on a on a on a boat, and they move it up the Nile or down the Nile to to the Mediterranean, and then they brought it to to France. And today, that circle of zodiac is at the Louvre. And they, the put plaster, yeah, the Louvre Museum. And, and they put a plaster copy on, on where they left the hole on the on the roof of this chapel, basically. You know, this we nowadays we we, we frown on this as looting. Uh, you know, there's the Elgin marbles are in in uh, uh, England and the circular zodiacs at the Louvre, and the Western world is full of artifacts from the old times in the Eastern world that have been taken. And uh, I'm not sure if uh, 
exactly i'm not going to get into the ins and outs of that but that's a uh a, a factor certainly this is a temple about time and unfortunately free dreamlanders we've run out of time on your end of the thing and so uh, we're going to say goodbye to you now and subscribers we're going to keep on uh digging a little deeper into the significance of the zodiac symbols and how they relate to the ancient egyptian understanding of astronomy thank you free dreamlanders very much for being with us and remember jose's website josemariabarrera.com the book is dendera temple of time magnificent transformative experience yeah he's he's excited about it okay jose what in your background you you're an, it's a basically an engineering background as i understand it yeah is there something in your background that drew you to the to Egypt in the first place, something perhaps personal, or it just seems, you know, you're not an, uh, 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 an Egyptologist or an archaeologist or uh, someone like Robert Schock, who is a geologist who just who studies the past, or um, uh, Graham Hancock, who tries to reinterpret the past. What brought you to Egypt? I I think it was fortune, uh, like probably like eight years ago or nine years ago. We I live in New York City and we went to an exhibit of Tutankhamun. Was a reproduction of the tomb of Tutankhamun. And when I went there and I saw it was a beautiful presentation reproduction. When I saw that, I, I had never been like in touch with the with the Egyptian culture like deeply because to me it was it's so foreign and it requires like it's a universe so if, if you want to explore that it's gonna take a lifetime to understand what it is right because it's it's so foreign and so different than, than other cultures and even though it is the 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 cradle of of our our civilization uh, it was so foreign that to me, I was like, I'm not gonna bother. But when I went to this presentation with, with to this exhibition, and I saw the magnificence of of this tomb, I was like, I think I have to go to Egypt to check it out. Uh, so we went with my wife to Egypt, and then we ended up at this temple, and I was in love with the temple since the moment I came into it. Uh, it is what you said at the beginning is, is very interesting is that this is a religion that is not dead but it's still alive and yeah. in particular in this temple in this temple you can feel you can sense the presence of the goddess Hathor there it's still alive it's still inside the temple when you go because you don't have to imagine oh there was a roof here and there were columns here no you still can walk in and, and the sense and the the warmth of the goddess of love is still there. So so that's incredible. And I never had that, that experience in any other, like literally any other holy place before. This is the only holy place where the presence of the divine 
or uh, to me, is still there, and I, I still felt it, right? It's very interesting, because I know people who feel that the old gods were more than representations of the inner life that we were discussing earlier and representations of the world, natural world, the powers of, of the natural world, that they are somehow or another living entities as well. That there's a there's a concentration of consciousness, I guess, that would tell us what your thoughts are about this. Are you familiar with the concept of an egregore? of an egregore uh yeah but tell us so to, for the audience an egregore is a psychic entity that is comprised by the collective belief of people so the more people who believe in certain concept or entity or whatever that belief is what brings free or gives reality to these entities Mm, so, an example of a psychical entity is the concept of the state, for example. So, where are states? States do not exist outside the imagination of humans. Like, they're like the, the imaginary lines on the maps that trace where the geographical area of, of, on, a, on a map is, right? Those are figments of human imagination. And all the attributes, you, can, you cannot point at where the state is. Is it like, is it the Capitol building? Is it the flag? Is it the national anthem? Is it, what is it, right? It's a bunch of ideas and concepts that come together as a cluster. And the more people who believe on these things, then the more they become real and they exist, and they literally exist because we live our lives pretending that these creatures exist, like the state, and, and we be, our behavior is modulated by the belief in these entities. So their impact on reality of these entities is expressed as human behavior. Mm, this is what is called angels right and and you see in in the bible when when you look at the categories of angels one of them is called the principalities and a principality is one ruler or one entity that its role is to look over a particular geographic area and that's what a principality is and is the name of a category of angels and it's an egregore and they literally exist, like corporations is another type of everywhere where, I don't know, Starbucks, it has a logo, it has a presence, it has a board of the chairman of the board and so on. But where is a Starbucks? The Starbucks is a psychical entity that exists in the collective imagination of the people who go around and for some reason, this entity secretes coffee. So it's fascinating, right? Because they're these entities that are supernatural because they're not in nature, but they express themselves in nature. Could it be that this a temple like this 
so magnificent and such an intense experience to be in that you you feel it strongly even to this day mm -hmm. you have spent god knows how much money and how much time in your life to I do don't want to know <laughs> no. you have what you have done is you have reconnected with the egregore of hathor and these if they receive enough uh sustenance which i would say is attention they can take on a life of their own you know there's a book called well it's called egregores and i may have uh interviewed the author about it uh, i don't remember his name offhand but it is I, I i certainly read it and it's a book about how the these entities can become independent of their they can literally become the deities that they are meant to represent and the egyptians were immensely experienced people the egyptian priesthood now at this point in time went back oh gosh thousands of years and they had vast knowledge not only of the world around them but of the human mind it not not in the way we have knowledge of the human mind but in another way could it be that they intentionally set out to create egregores because it's it, 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 it but by this extraordinary building this extraordinary temple that they were trying to bring the gods to life I, because it's not just hathor there's all kind all sorts of osiris and all sorts of other gods are represented in the temple absolutely and and we live in a symbiotic relationship with these entities today they have taken more a secular form but their essence is the same right is is corporations and states yes right? Be, before we had these entities like like the religions like organ like big organized religions uh, which are still around but uh, in the time of 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 the egyptians they were absolute right it was the the main entity was the the institution of the pharaoh and if you think about it the embodiment of these institutions in a way what gives them a continuity over time is the edifications, the buildings, the temples, these magnificent temples made in rocks, right, in stones, are a perpetuation of the egregore or this entity for eternity. So, so if you if you go to Washington D.C., the architecture of Washington D.C., the mall, the obelisk, the Capitol, all these buildings are the embodiment of the state of the United States. They're the body, the, the, the skeleton of, of, of the state, of this egregore. And it's incredibly powerful because in a part, what they're doing is they're sedimenting, they're solidifying the idea of the egregore in rocks, in architecture. Yes. And it's incredibly powerful. And, and we live in this symbiotic relationship with them, like... People work for corporations all their lives, right? Like people before they used to go for today, they go to the churches and they worship their gods and, and they go to Starbucks and they buy the products of Starbucks and Apple and all these things. 
And these entities are these hybrid entities that have a material form that manifests in the behavior of people, as I mentioned before, and the structures that we create, like their buildings and the logo of Starbucks or whatever it is. And I, I think I need a coffee because I'm talking a lot about Starbucks, <laughs> which is your side you of it. need a coffee. Right? <laughs> but, but that's... So, so these supernatural entities, and, and when you think about supernatural, what it means is over nature, right? So these entities, they don't follow the rules of, of physics. They, 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 they follow rules made by people, right? Like, oh, yeah, we have the charter of the company, and the board of directors creates the rules, and you have to work from 9 to 5, and the, the office is open from uh, the Starbucks uh, store is open from from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. or on weekends, all these rules are arbitrary. They're supernatural because they're not rules of nature. They're rules of man. They're the laws of man. And that's what regiments our behavior across societies, these rules made up by us, they're supernatural. So, so we live in this world where we live because we have a body and we, we, we are embodied. We we have to comply, or we, we have no 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 choice but to comply with the with the laws of nature and physics and gravity and all this. But our behavior, our daily behavior, is regimented by these arbitrary laws that we create. Now the trick is, and this is in order to create something that is sustainable, what you have to do is those laws that you create out of nothing they have to be harmonious with the natural cycles and the environment where you are. Because if they're not, then you're creating a society that is not long lasting. So the real wisdom of the Egyptians was to be able to create these arbitrary laws, but that they were in harmony with the cycles of the environment where they had to live, which was the Nile. And that's what I think that ensured that they had a long-lasting civilization, the, the most, the longest-lasting civilization and successful civilization that we, not without hiccups, but the longest civilization that humans have been able to, to shape is the ancient Egyptian civilization. And I think it is because of the harmony on their institutions regimented by the movements in the sky. That's really interesting, and it gets me back to it gets me to another question, which is the is there was there you know the Babylonians and beginning with the Sumerians were very advanced astronomers. Uh, they had thousand over a thousand years of data uh, in Babylon by this point, all accomplished with naked eye observation of the skies. Mm -hmm. Was there any connection between Babylonian astronomers and Egyptian? Absolutely. Uh, so the Persians invaded Egypt at some point. So there was some cross-pollination between the Babylonians and the Egyptians. And later in the Ptolemaic period, when the Greeks came into 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 Egypt uh, with Alexander the Great, the Egyptians 
the astronomical knowledge of the Egyptians came from Babylon. So at the end, and that's what you see in this ceiling, and that's what is interesting about this ceiling is it is an infusion of Egyptian astronomy and mixed with Babylonian and Greek uh, astronomy. So, yeah, there is definitely a connection between both. It's more, and it's super interesting, the Romans, the Julian calendar is Egyptian. So in Egypt, they created a 365-day uh, calendar, and they came with the, with the leap year. They never implemented it themselves, interestingly. So they created the leap year, the, the, the concept of the leap year, and when Caesar went to, to, to Egypt, he, they had a disarrangement in Rome with the, with the calendar, and they were looking for alternatives. And uh, Caesar, talking to some priests in Egypt, found about the, the, the leap year, the concept of the leap year. And then in the Julian calendar, they introduced that based on Egyptian knowledge. So, so you have all this cross-pollination from the Romans and the Greeks into the, into the Egyptians, from the Egyptians to the Greeks, from the Babylonians into Egypt and so forth, right? So yeah, these, all these different cultures because of wars and conquerors and commerce, they were in touch with each other and they knew about each other. And, and a lot of the knowledge that we have to do in, 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 in the Western culture that comes from the Greek civilization comes from Egypt because most of the big guys that we know today, like Plato or P Pythagoras, they basically went to Alexandria and they studied with the Egyptian priests in those universities, in quotes. And the knowledge we have today is the westernized, uh, in, in big part, is westernized Egyptian knowledge. Yeah, well, Pythagoras spent five years in Egypt and basically came back with Egyptian science, astronomy, and astrology, and uh, took it from there. He integrated it into, into Greek thought. Uh, but it was it's, it's Egypt that we're looking at when, uh, when we look at, uh, at, the, at, the, um, at, at the work of Pythagoras, and, and at generally, in general, at the work of the, of the ancient Greeks. Now, uh, what about the predictive aspects of astrology, which were so important to the Greeks and the Romans? I know that because we have a lot of, uh, uh, in fact, uh, at one point, this was so widely practiced in Rome that people were using astrology to predict the fate of the emperor. And it became, it became illegal to do that. Mm -hmm. the, the emperors having had a very, very dubious record of survival they had it. And so, you know, people are always trying to figure out when the emperor was going to be the new, the current emperor was going to be assassinated, and uh, the emperors that made them nervous. Um, in any case, what about this predictive aspect of astrology, and the Egyptians? How did they view it? Okay, so it has two parts, right? One is 
what I was mentioning, like I can use the stars as predictors of time and they can, because it's cyclical and it's tied to seasonal, I can predict natural events based on the observation of the stars. So that's the scientific side. The other one is the, that is undeniable, is, is the fact that in antiquity, they use the stars and astrology to create astral charts and being able to see, oh, when should I go to war? When should I invade? And, and many pharaohs and rulers, they had their personal astrologer who was in charge of looking at tea leaves or the stars or whatever is the smoke and, and predict, yeah, this is a good time to conquer or is not and so on. So, so you have that side as well. Mm. Personally and particularly, I don't know too much about that side. And a part of that is that what attracts me is what I can explain. The things yeah, that I, I, I understand that. I don't I, dismiss I, them, but but I, I don't know what to tell you because what 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 I what I can tell you about is the things that I can explain and I have explanations for. The others, yeah, they're an open possibility. And and there is a fact, the fact that a lot of rulers had astrologers and, and so on. And it's an important part of the, the functions of the temples, but I don't know much about it, basically. So uh, yeah, well, I I understand that, and I've I've had a a very uh, strange sort of relationship with astrology myself, and uh, I've seen it work in my life too many times to to discount it, and I've tried to figure out why in the world it would work. Well, let me show you something, Whitney. It's like, look at what I have here. <laughs> Oh yeah, those alchemical exactly. I'm familiar. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Because I didn't know you were interested in alchemy as well. Oh yeah, yeah. You study alchemy as well. And it's being a big tool for, for the study of Egypt, right? Because by the way, a lot of the knowledge of an alchemy comes from, from Egypt. But more than anything else, what it has given me is a framework of understanding. Like Again, uh, one thing is, and, and, and the problem when you're, when you're hyper-rational as I am, and an engineer as I am, is that I'm trying to look for literal explanations of things. But once you crack and open the door, the possibility of, of symbology, you find that there, is, there are different ways of learning rather than only the literal way. And... A lot of the knowledge in Egypt and, and in antiquity was encoded in symbolic terms like myths and the old gods and all these things. So unless you have that framework and that mindset, then you go there and you all you see is superstition. You cannot see the inner reading of what is there. So that's it's been a great tool for that, right? Like the mindset. Yeah, I understand. Hmm? I understand. Um, so what what brought you to alchemy? I asked you the question earlier mm -hmm. about alchemy and and Egypt, and you said you weren't too interested. That wasn't something you'd been in. But obviously, you have a significant 
awareness because I could just a glimpse at the alchemical uh, uh, images that you showed me indicate that you have a deep knowledge of alchemy or you wouldn't have chosen certain of those images. Uh, okay. uh, well, I, I don't know if anyone can claim to have a deep knowledge of alchemy. <laughs> oh, so every alchemist, every <laughs> alchemist I've ever interviewed, the first thing they say is that all the other alchemists are wrong. <laughs> no, I'm wrong. I have a, there's a wonderful alchemist uh, called Seven Bremner, who's been on the show a couple of times. And um, I had an, another one, uh, Prince uh, Stash Derola, who has been on the show a couple of times. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first thing any other alchemist uh, did, the first email I got after each of these shows were from other alchemists saying, Yes, fascinating, but this isn't alchemy. <laughs> Correct. Correct. He's... What is alchemy then? You that's a shot. Let's see how in what way you're going to be wrong. <laughs> At least as far as the other alchemists are concerned. Correct. So <laughs> that's a great like that that you that makes up for another show with Lee. <laughs> Yeah, uh, <laughs> so we've, we've only got a few minutes left. Alchemy, so. okay, okay. So, to me, alchemy is the art of being able to harmonize opposites. Yeah, that, that's that's what it is, and and you can see it in like to create balance, and 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 you can do that in chemical terms, right? And that's the the traditional alchemy, where is the 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 source of our modern chemistry, right, is create chemical or alchemical reactions that are stable and where you create stable substances. Or it can be among forces, right? Like so psychical forces like love and hate and things like that. You, you can use the same techniques to be able to harmonize opposites in order to do that. And, and then the other one is to be able to create gold out of lead, which means to be able to see the beauty in the ugly and the other way around, to be able to see ugliness in beauty. So to be able to see the duality of the world on everything. And, and to me, that's what alchemy is. Uh, Negredo to Albedo, uh, moderated by Citronitas, leading to Rubedo. That's the process as it's Correct. understood. Um, an internal process, though, primarily, not something you do in a lab, although in the past, I think alchemical laboratories were were uh, basically blowing up all, all the time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that's one thing that we've done, right? Is that we, we our inner life, we, we have segregated our inner life from, from our outer life. And I think a lot of the malign of our society today is that we, we live in this disjoint entity that is we have our inner life and the outer life. And even some people today, they don't even acknowledge that they have an inner life because it's only an illusion because consciousness doesn't exist or whatever, like we go to that extreme, right? Where 
what you cannot explain or what you cannot quantify is irrelevant and you shouldn't yeah. be thinking about it, right? So I think it, one of the nice things about the past, and I don't romanticize the past in any way, it's beautiful to have penicillin, but uh, one of the things that they had in the past is that they didn't have these arbitrary differences between different fields of human knowledge and experience that we have today, right? Like, so, yes. so, so you could see, and, and that's the beauty of something like as above, so below, right? Or as, as within, so without, is that the same rules that apply for the inner life can be applied to the outer life because at the end, everything is a fractal, say. And to do that, of course, you have to find the inner life. And that gets us all the way back to the ancient Egyptians and the uh, admonition to know thyself that ended up in Greece. Wisdom. <laughs> to be a philosopher, which is right. for exactly. wisdom. Yeah. Well, we have come to the end of our time together. Speaking of time, Dendera, the Temple of Time, the celestial wisdom of ancient Egypt. Very simply, one of the most beautiful and inspiring volumes on Egypt ever created. And I say that from the standpoint of someone who has seen an awful lot of books on ancient Egypt. This is a whole different level of excellence. It's truly an honor to have had you on the show, Jose. And I think we had a wonderful conversation. I think Hathor will be very pleased with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm honored and you have very kind words and the honor is all mine with you. And thank you so much. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.